It's Thursday, August 24th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday's Republican debate was viewed by 25 million Americans. Wow. Except Twitter slash X and Donald Trump are claiming that Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson was viewed by, well, at the time of this recording, it was 250 million viewers. Now, Twitter is only 80 million U.S. users, so I guess the Estonians are hitting that one hard. No, it's just that Twitter views and TV ratings are counted in entirely different ways. Or maybe it does mean that more people tuned in to see Tucker interview Trump than watch the first five Super Bowls combined. Fox let off its debate with this setup. As we sit here tonight, the number one song on the Billboard chart is called Rich Men North of Richmond. It is by a singer from Farmville, Virginia, named Oliver Anthony. His lyrics speak of alienation, of deep frustration with the state of government and of this country. Washington, D.C. is about 100 miles north of Richmond. Now, I know what you're thinking. I heard that song on the gist. That's right. We've got our ear on the pulse of the American cultural and political scenes. That was the first question put to Ron DeSantis. Why are Americans loving this song? Now, you may think, my gosh, has American politics come down from the heights of, I don't know, the Kennedy-Nixon debates, but you'd be wrong. Let me play a clip. September 26th, 1960, the first Kennedy-Nixon debate. I'm Sandra Van Oker, NBC News. I'm Charles Warren, Mutual News. I'm Stuart Novin, CBS News. Bob Fleming, ABC News. The first question to Senator Kennedy from Mr. Fleming. Mr. Kennedy, as you know, the number one song in America exhorts our youth to, come on, baby, let's do the twist. It is by recording artist Ernest Evans, who goes by the nom de bop, Chubby Checker, two-part question. Is a chubby checker the sort of cultural icon our children should be looking up to and isn't the idea of a synonym for obesity paired with a children's game just a ripoff of Fats Domino? Okay, Kennedy's answer was no doubt charming and full of witticisms, but it is lost to time. But then there was this question from the third Carter Ford presidential debate in which Barbara Walters moderated a panel of journalists. It has been determined that President Ford would take the first question in this last debate. And Mr. Kraft, you have that first question for President Ford. Thank you, Barbara. As you know, the number one song in the country at this moment is Disco Duck by, of course, Rick Dees and his cast of idiots. There is some concern that domestic ducks are in this country at a disadvantage when it comes to the quacking and the singing emanating from their stubbier bills, putting them at a competitive loss compared to Japanese ducks, for instance, whose bills are twice as long and can do much more. As you know, these particular ducks will enter the marketplace, possibly disrupting the disco market, but you would have to sign off on that, will you? When you have a bill of that magnitude, with those many provisions, a president has to sit and decide if there's more good than bad, And from the analysis that I've made so far, it seems to me that that bill does 
uh, justify my signature and my approval. Ford, it does not need to be said, lost the election. On the show today, the Vivek quake, but first, in many ways, trust is the foundation of a society, but if we know anything about trust, it's that when it is broken, repairing it can be hard, if not impossible. Well, not so fast, says my next guest. It all depends on what type of trust violation you've committed. My guest is Peter Kim. He's an expert on trust and how to repair it when it breaks down. We will walk through the real-world examples of why Tylenol was able to win back the trust of the public, but the Irish Republican Army was not. Peter Kim, up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Trust is important interpersonally and societally. One of the more compelling arguments that I've heard about what's happening to our society is that we're losing trust. And this isn't vague. This is something that social scientists talk about. We're going from a high trust to a low trust society. And there are many add-on effects to that. Peter H. Kim is a professor at the University of Southern California. He is the author of a new book, How Trust Works, The Science of How Relationships Are Built, Broken, and Repaired. How Trust Works. Peter Kim, welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. So how does trust work? Would be a bad question for me to ask if I were to establish what kind of trust. (laughs) That's right. Um, Competence and integrity are the two most important bases of trust. across an array of situations, whether it's our assessments of friends, uh, peers, uh, supervisors, leaders, um, those have been broadly determined to be the two most important criteria. You talk about a couple of examples that are totemic. One is a, a problem with integrity and one is a problem with competence. And they both uh, were about a loss of life One was a bombing conducted or at least acknowledged and countenanced by the real IRA in Ireland, and one was the Tylenol poisonings. And each of the companies handled them in a different way. It's important to understand how they handle them, thinking about integrity and competence. Could you talk about what your research showed when you looked into it through those lenses? Sure. So the Tylenol case is uh, the classic a case that's used in uh, crisis management circles. Uh, so that's uh, that was an incident where uh, the Tylenol uh, uh, pills had been uh, laced uh, with poison and led to uh, a number of deaths in Chicago. And so uh, Johnson and Johnson uh, they recalled those pills. Uh, they issued warnings, and um, this was an example of how. When something like this occurs, some some uh, some violation of trust, you are questioning whether or not you can rely on this company and their products. Uh, the right thing to do is to take ownership over what happened, uh, and uh, by doing so, uh, by taking full ownership, you're signaling that you're going to fix this in the future. And so that was the model that was used for. Uh, 
for tri- uh, crisis management uh, consultants and in courses for a long time. But Right, right. This is how to do it. This is the playbook Tylenol showed us. Exactly. So then the real IRA, <laughs> I don't know how real they are, but anyway, <laughs> they're a paramilitary outfit in 1998. They bomb a civilian setting. The IRA always says we like to bomb military settings. They you also say we give warnings. Anyway, um, many people are killed. It's the worst bombing. It's uh, more than two dozen people killed. And they essentially take some pages out of the Tylenol playbook, right? They express regret. They explain what happened. They acknowledge responsibility. They say, you know, we have repentance. Please forgive us. Doesn't work. Why? What's the difference? Right. So it, it had a, a very different uh, reaction uh, by the public. Uh, and the big difference was in the attribution that underlied the offense. Uh, And this gets to this distinction between competence and integrity. So uh, one of the reasons why the Johnson & Johnson case uh, was a case of real success was because people saw what happened as a matter of competence. It's hard. It was hard to imagine at the time that anyone would go into a, a, a drugstore and buy those pills and lace them with cyanide and and then put them back on shelves uh, for other people to consume and, and die from. Uh, so the failure to foresee that really bizarre set of circumstances uh, made it. Uh, easy to see this as a matter of competence. Johnson and Johnson just didn't know. They weren't aware of that possibility. And once they were aware of it, they addressed it. And this gets to the bias that arises with regard to competence violations. When it concerns matters of competence, we weigh positive information about competence much more heavily than negative information about competence. So yes, uh, Johnson & Johnson failed to foresee this as a possibility, but their action, so that would be uh, information, negative information about competence, right? but their s- proactive steps to address the problem provided positive information about competence, and we weigh that information much more heavily. So in general, we did wrong. Here's what we're doing to correct it. If the wrong we did was a mistake, we we as humans generally say, okay, and we don't need much more information than that. You're trying to correct it. Exactly. And, right. and so that's why it was so successful. Yeah. But when the real IRA says we did wrong, and then the public says, well, you didn't make a mistake. You meant to do wrong. It's a much <laughs> higher bar to clear. That's exactly right. They made an intentional decision to put the bomb in a, a location where uh, parents and children were shopping for for uh, supplies for school, and 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 so that was the decision that was considered intentional. And intentionality is considered a, a very important basis for uh, integrity violations. Um, and, and and once you see something as a matter of integrity. Um, then this other bias uh, comes into play. Uh, we tend to weigh negative information about integrity much more heavily than positive information mm-hmm. about integrity. So, uh, and this is where uh, apologies uh, are double-edged swords. So, an apology conveys both guilt and uh, and remorse and intended yeah, redemption. Yeah. Think about the think about the playbook that the experts told us Tylenol um, exhibited. Things like request for forgiveness because you did it, declaration of repentance because you did it, acknowledgement of responsibility because you did it, just admitting guilt down the line. Yeah, and and that's an essential part of an apology. And and the issue is that 
for competence-based violations, that's okay to admit it because we're not going to weigh that negative information so heavily. We weigh the positive information of the, the, conveyed by the signals of remorse from the apology more heavily. But when it becomes a matter of integrity, the, the bias is reversed. We weigh the negative information so much more heavily. So when they, the real IRA said, we apologize, they are acknowledging that they are responsible. And then they say, through the apology, you know, this is not something we would want to do. We would not do this again. No one's going to believe that second part. That's going to be the part that's discounted. Right. So what should the real IRA have done aside from not bomb those people? Well, that's uh, a good question because uh, what I found through uh, a host of studies uh, with uh, various collaborators around the world is that integrity-based violations are the hardest to overcome. There's very little you can do to overcome those kinds of incidents. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've looked at various responses, you know, even substantive responses like punishment and, you know, regulatory systems and so on. Once you see someone as having low integrity, uh, then it, it, the, the, it's a, an uphill battle that they may never be able to overcome. So one of your suggestions is if you can, you should reframe what is seen as an integrity violation into a competence violation. Okay, if you can, I bet a lot of the people who are doing wrong in the world probably see themselves that way. I'm not a bad person. I just made a mistake. Um, You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and his extramarital affairs was an interesting example that you point to as an attempt to do this and it kind of worked compared to some of the extramarital affairs of other politicians. How did it work? Well, um, he did something masterful when he was responding to that uh, allegation. Uh, he, he also apologized, like many others who have been accused of those kinds of violations, uh, but he did something before apologizing. He said something to the effect of, I thought we were just kidding around. Uh, I had no idea that they would be offended by, by what I thought was just Play, playful behavior, if I had offended them, I, I am truly sorry. Mm-hmm. So he first reframed the incident from a matter of competence, uh, from a matter of integrity to competence. Uh, he basically said this was the result of him having a, so, a faulty social barometer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, yes. He was uh, socially clueless on this front. Um, and if if that had led to harm, it, he, he is sorry. So Right. He talked about rowdy movie sets and <laughs> the circumstance that he was bad at reading as opposed to doing a bad thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So part of the argument was, you know, uh, the movie sets, the norms are very different there. Mm-hmm. He was uh, framing this very much as a competence-based violation. And, right. and that's what allowed that apology to work. Here's a really interesting... And from there, there are many nuances that are teased out, how we punish people. Uh, You talk about how Steve Jobs kind of pulled a fast one on his partner, uh, Wozniak, when he had a contract to invent the game Breakout and Jobs didn't disclose that he'd be pocketing all the bonuses. And the real reason they were working fast is because there'd be money involved and Jobs didn't share that money with Wozniak. So that was seen as uh, Wozniak years later didn't regard that as well. 
that's one thing in the past that set our relationship in general off on a decent enough direction so that we're all billionaires. He really punished the guy based on that. And integrity, he viewed it as an integrity-based violation. And even when they come to pass years later, unlike competence mistakes, it's almost never water under the bridge if integrity is perceived to be involved. Yeah, I, I, and it really speaks to how important this framing is, the, the interpretation of an incident as a matter of competence or integrity. It's, it's more important than the objective nature of the offense. So that same offense, uh, if he had seen, you know, if it were uh, just a penny, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, or a million dollars, it doesn't matter. It, it is how you view uh, the cause of that incident. Uh, and that's what we found again and again, that, you know, it, it really is how we choose to view the incident, how we interpret uh, the reasons why this happened. Even if something is an integrity-based violation, um, there's only so many, you're, you're dealt that hand. It really is an integrity-based violation. You want to do the best thing you can. So I've read, I've created an integrity-based violation. I've read Peter Kim's research. I know it's going to be much harder than it was competence. Should I apologize or should I lie? So it's easy to infer from the findings uh, that uh that the that the lie is a better move, uh, but the lie could work. It, it could <laughs> it seems, work. It seems like apologizing <laughs> for integrity-based violation won't work, right? And, and and that gets to you know why it's it's taken me this long to write a book uh, on these findings because you it, didn't want to come out with the title of the book <laughs> "Why Lies Work." Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is so easy to. Uh, take these findings on a superficial level and and, and, and apply them in a nefarious way. Lies are very strategically problematic because you can, there, there's evidence out there. You can, you're going to get caught uh, quite a few times. And when you're caught, what are you left with? You're left with the fact that trust has not been repaired. So rather than doing that, uh, I, I think the harder but more meaningful way forward it is to encourage a dialogue about what are all the reasons why this incident might have occurred. Mm-hmm. Not, not in an attempt to necessarily uh, deflect responsibility, uh, but to have uh, open the possibility that these kinds of incidents are not as clear cut as we typically assume. So it does make sense that we punish integrity, uh, trust violations more than competence, because we have phrases in our society like, I'm not a bad person, I just screwed this up, or I made a mistake, or I'm not a bad person, I just you know, didn't understand what I was getting into. We don't have the opposite, right? Which is like, I'm not an incompetent person, I'm just a little evil. Like, no one's ever said that. <laughs> so so, so it, does, it does make sense that we would punish integrity violations more. But my question is, you know, you did something interesting where you looked at Donald Trump. And so I was thinking, as I do often, as I read the book, well, what about Trump? You know, his detractors, I'm not talking about the people who think he could do no wrong, the people who will admit he does wrong. Don't they have to see his violations more as integrity violations than competence violations? Don't they see that he's more a bully and a liar who delivers what they want, right? So in other words, 
Yeah, we know his character, but he gives us results we generally like. But you kind of put your finger on that and say, actually, the mental process, might I might be getting it wrong. That might not be what they're doing. How does, and my question is, really? <laughs> <laughs> right, so uh, one uh, common rationalization that I've heard uh, has been that, well, Trump is not a politician. Um, and, and so he's not practiced at lying for a living like these politicians in uh, Washington, D.C., who have done it for years or decades. Uh, and so that allows them to see this as a matter of competence. Uh, and so that's something that he's not good at. And, and that's OK. So it must strike you that there is um, entrenched conventional wisdom about the power of apology or how to apologize that your studies have just shown is wrong, flat out wrong. For instance, the Tylenol playbook of owning everything all the time is wrong, depending on the type of uh, violation. What about, and here's one that I've sensed, there's a, you know, you'll when a scandal happens and then there's apologies, you'll always uh, read the op-ed or hear someone opine, you know, this isn't good enough. What you have to do is truly repair. And to show real regret, you have to make efforts towards repair. And people will nod their heads and say, oh, how can you disagree with that? Well, I don't know if you disagree with that, but can you puncture it a little as conventional wisdom? Sure. So uh, there's this idea of uh, apologies and responses of, of that sort being uh, cheap talk. So there's an interest in more substantive responses. And um, I, I have done some research comparing these verbal responses to more substantive responses. And they all operate in the same way. Uh, so the repair of trust is ultimately about how we deal with matters of guilt and redemption. It's basically the, the basis of some of our most foundational stories. Um, and uh, the idea of redemption, however, is something that is really very hard to uh, estimate, right? And, and we, we don't know what's in people's minds when they are responding to these incidents. So we can only make an inference. And we, what we infer is that with harsher punishments, they are more likely to repent and, and they're more likely to fix it, right? But that's a very noisy uh, relationship. You know, there are times when people are genuinely sorry for what's happened just simply by their awareness of the repercussions of their acts and will mm -hmm. never do it again. And so what we find is that it's that signal of repentance that matters. It's not the substantive nature of the response, but um, it, there are plenty of cases in which even very substantive repair responses do little good. Um, the book uh, refers to Anthony Weiner as, as an example of this, where he gave up his political career after a sexting scandal. Mm -hmm. He had a press conference announcing that decision. He His life was politics. So this was a very costly decision for him. Uh, and in response, someone in the crowd screamed, yeah, bye-bye, pervert, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and, and to, to this day, he is no longer in politics, right? Um, so, and, and no one would probably want him in politics again. And so that's an example of how a very substantive response can do very little good. And in other cases, uh, just a sincere apology can make a big difference. Peter H. Kim is a professor of management and organization at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business, and he is the author of the new book, How Trust Works, The Science of How Relationships Are Built, Broken, and Repaired. Professor Kim, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
But that is not all of my conversation with Dr. Kim. Pesca Plus subscribers will hear an extended cut in which I quiz him on how trust played a role in the police shootings of Breonna Taylor and also in the recent uproar about Lizzo's allegation about her treatment of employees. Pesca Plus subscribers, you can trust us for extended interviews each week. And they do really help the gist thrive in a time of chaos in the podcasting world. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com and sign up. You will be glad you did. Trust me. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm hitting this hard. And now the spiel. The man who dominated Republican debates by force of will, eagerness to tangle, lack of specifics or consistency, but a keen sense for what Republican voters wanted to hear was not there last night. But there was one participant at last night's presidential debate who noted all those traits in former President Donald Trump and said, well, why not do that? Vivek Ramaswamy was the most annoying character in yesterday's debate, but also most likely the winner. A week ago, Quinnipiac asked Republicans their opinion of Ramaswamy. 39% favorable, 9% unfavorable, 51% haven't heard enough. Now they've heard. And the unfavorable numbers might rise, I don't know, to 15, even as the favorable rise to only 12. But that's how you get support. That's how you get attention. Vivek also wiggled his fingers at Ron DeSantis, interrupted everyone on stage except Guy Burgum and Asa Hutchinson. Fun fact, those two guys were on stage and was so eager to get speaking time that he took outlandish positions just to get called on. Climate change a hoax. Ukraine shouldn't be funded. The Russian-Chinese alignment over the war is best disrupted by just letting Russia win. He was also the only one to say that he would pardon Trump because, remember, he was channeling Trump, and we all know that Trump would pardon Trump. Vivek Ramaswamy will not win the Republican nomination. There is no way. But he will be a factor and a player, and I don't know, maybe we'll even see a Trump-Ramaswamy 2024 ticket? Not implausible. Well, nothing about those two relies on the concept of plausibility, but not impossible. So just this morning, I interviewed a first-time novelist for a segment that we're going to run when his book comes out in September, but I thought I would get this guy's thoughts on Vivek Ramaswamy, the whole phenomenon, and if he identifies with Ramaswamy on any level, Andrew Yang had this to say. Yeah, I wrote a Politico piece um, that was a little tongue-in-cheek about uh, giving advice to Vivek. Um, I, I understand the comparisons very instinctively. Uh, we're sort of youngish Asian folks from a business tech background who are running as outsiders. Um, our ideas are very different. Our policies are very different. And the party context is totally different. Where I, I just said, hey, 15% of Republicans uh trust the media and Republicans do not care about whether someone's held elected office before. I mean, exhibit a Donald Trump. Um, so, uh, I think that, um, I understand the comparisons, uh, we're different human beings. Uh, we would do different things. Um, but I, I have a natural, uh, empathy for his approach because he's coming to crash the party and then there are folks who are there who will naturally um, want to dismiss him 
But in that context, I think he's going to do very, very well. Mm -hmm. um, because again, you're talking about a party that has taken on an anti-institutional identity. Um, and that's what he represents in many ways. I will say on my own behalf, it's like, I seem like an out, like, I, and I, I don't know if, you, if people can tell this, but um, I'm not so much of a tear it down guy. Like I, I actually feel bad for folks who are trapped in systems of incentives that make it so that they're stuck. Um, and I hope the novel kind of feels that way. Like these aren't terrible venal humans. I mean, there are a couple of villains that are terrible humans, <laughs> but, but, but a lot of them are actually, I hope like, you know, seem kind of um, uh, relatable. Um, uh, I'm, I'm someone who thinks that we have to refresh, renew, reinvigorate. Um, and I, I think that there is a very, very important element that's missing in American life when we boil it down to tear the institutions down or defend them at all costs. There, there has to be something new. Andrew Yang, 2020 Democratic candidate and author of the forthcoming book, The Last Election. One important point to note, and it went by quickly, but I want to highlight it. The party context. The party context is different. It's massively different. While both parties have an appetite, to some extent, for a fresh young face, the Democrats are very, very much more wedded to our institutions. They're the ones who are holding up our institutions. They're the only ones making the case for our institutions as useful things. So when Ramaswamy promises this... And the U.S. Constitution, it is the strongest guarantor of freedom in human history. That is what won us the American Revolution. That is what will win us the revolution of 2024. Thanks for letting me introduce myself tonight. Thank you. Not a metaphor, not a slogan, but seemingly a bona fide promise to deliver a revolution. It is entirely unproblematic to the party who voted in Trump to tear it all down. The Democrats like or liked enough an outsider whose fans wore hats that said math. That was flattering to them. But Ramaswamy and Yang are different because while they're both outsiders and inexperienced for Democrats, that is a hurdle to surmount. And for Republicans, it's table stakes. It's the minimum requirement along the way to the kind of radicalism that exists far outside an algebra textbook. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca's CLO of Peachfish Productions. She was in the haven't heard of him category before last night, though not a Republican voter. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.